think we're all good. I wanted to give a, a quick update for those of you that have been praying for James, our drummer. He had had a, a stroke, um, I think it's now it's been a week and a half ago, and, and uh, he's in the hospital. I had the opportunity of visiting him uh, yesterday, and I was, I was pleasantly surprised that he's, he seems to be doing much better. He still has all the, the symptoms from a stroke, the slurred speech and the, you know, the, the problems with the brain connecting to what he wants to say and what he wants to do. But, but he, was, uh, he was alert. He knew it was me and even made some jokes about it. And I said, James, i got to go. He goes, bye. And it's like, okay, I'm leaving. But, um, but for those of you that know James, it was just, just love him dearly and just continue to pray for him. And it's going to be a long recovery, but um, but I was blessed to see him. So, and then we are in between books this morning, and so I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity just to do a couple topical messages. And so I've got a little series called "Standing Strong in a Fallen World," and we're going to look at a few places in the Book of Daniel over the next couple of weeks. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter three. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these guys will bring one right to your seat. So you can follow along with us. Daniel chapter 3. And I've titled my message this morning, Living a Godly Life in a Fallen World. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have this morning. Thank you for these kids that have just blessed our hearts, Lord, by uh, just learning these songs and singing them for our veterans. Bless our veterans. Thank you for them, Lord God. Thank you for James and the healing process you're doing in his life, Lord. Thank you for this time together that we could be in your word, knowing, Lord, that we're not only going to get information, but application in our lives to change us. And to help us in our walks with you, Lord, and help us to, to draw closer to you. So we ask you to bless our time together. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that has not surrendered their heart and life to you this morning, they're not born again, would you especially speak to their hearts today? Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to tell you, I love when the time changes and it falls back. You know, you get an extra hour of sleep. Now, it feels kind of weird because it feels like, you know, late, <laughs> like 12.30, like the clock stay in the back. It's not 12.30, but, but, but I love it, you know. But I, we're still rushing around this morning like the time didn't change. It's crazy. Um, found a couple questions for you. What time did the ducks wake up the morning after the clocks were turned back? At the quack of dawn. Yeah, you got that one. Congress finally had a meeting about daylight savings. It was about time. Did it? About time. One of the best things about daylight savings time is that the clock in my car will finally be correct again. <laughs> you know, back in the 60s, Bob Dylan wrote a song called Times They Are Changing. And he wasn't talking about setting our clocks back. You know, it was a time of uncertainty. It was a time of change. Today, I would say that we are certainly living in changing times, uncertain times. Our society is changing rapidly and it is affecting all of us right now. We live in a different society, different culture we lived in 10 years ago. We live in a different culture we lived in two years ago. And I've been reading and maybe you're up to date on these. Thousands of medical workers across the nation have been fired for not taking the vaccine. Last week alone, we've seen attorney generals from 11 different states 
filed suit against administration challenging a new vaccine requirement for workers of companies with more than 100 employees. Our Missouri, our Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt filed this suit for Missouri that said this mandate is unconstitutional, unlawful, and unwise. On October, or October, Friday, November 5th, the same Missouri Attorney General filed another separate lawsuit in the Sixth Circuit along with six other states citing cause to believe there are grave constitutional and statutory issues with the administration's new OSHA vaccination mandate. Then we saw some 9,000-plus New York City police, firefighters, sanitation workers placed on unplayed leave due to vaccine mandates. Our society is changing. Our country has always been a defender of liberty. Liberty is freedom with responsibility. And one of the greatest things about our country was that people understood that and then took responsibility seriously. We now live in a world that, that is taking our freedoms away bit by bit without any apology. There are those in government no longer view freedom as liberty but a license. A license to do whatever they want to do and you can't do anything about it. Over 150 years ago, French historian Alexis de Tocqueville traveled to America to try to understand what made America such a great nation. And this quote is attributed to him. He says, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her com commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In the fertile fields and the boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good, and if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. And he also noted that liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. When America believes that freedom is more of a license to do what we want when we want, rather than the liberty that carries with the responsibilities, or when those responsibilities are not defined by a faith-based morality, then we see a nation that ceases to be great because she has ceased to pursue goodness by the power and strength of the living God. And we see the struggle today to maintain liberty and faith of a society that is no longer a faith-based morality. Maybe you caught this in social media. It was a post I read. It said this, first we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, uh, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, then we persecute those who still call it evil. And that's why God gave us the warning in Isaiah 5.20 when he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So again, all I can say is we are living in challenging times. And we can, what can we expect as Christians to face living godly lives in the times in which we are living? I think Daniel chapter 3 is a perfect illustration for us, perfect example of how we should be living today. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to have four points we're going to look at. Number one, a godly life brings opposition. Number two, a godly life brings hard choices. Number three, a godly life brings you to the edge. And number four, a godly life brings blessing and peace. Number one, a godly life brings opposition. Now, Daniel chapter three is a well-known story. It's a story of Hananiah Mishael and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names given to them by Nebuchadnezzar. 
Better known as Rack, Shack, and Benny. They're VeggieTales names. Now, nothing they did changed. But their culture changed. And the society around them changed. And so did their circumstances change, which made their beliefs stand out a bit more. And as a result, brought about great opposition. Because living a godly life in an ungodly world is going to bring about opposition. You can count on it. Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we know that. And we also know that in the first chapter of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel refused to dishonor God by eating from the king's table. Now that might seem strange. After all, they were being held captive, so why not in Babylon do like the Babylonians? What a blessing. Dig in. It would be so easy. But here's the problem. With that thinking, we confuse a blessed life with an easy life. To them, to eat the meat from the king's table would have meant compromise, eating those things that God disapproved of. And, and they said, hey, listen, we really can't do this. Now, in the end, God blessed them for not eating and made them even stronger and healthier than when they first began. And this is my point. I believe that God will bless us as we live godly lives, even when we face opposition. The scriptures speak of this Throughout God's word, Proverbs 3.33, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Psalm 128, verse 1, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. God blesses us when we live godly lives, lives that show we walk in his ways. But blessings does not always equate with ease of circumstances. Doesn't always, you know, equate with ease of life. There are times when God does bless us, but with that blessing, being blessed by the Lord is more than about experiencing the presence of God in the midst of whatever situation you may be in. That God's blessing is often found in the comfort He brings in the midst of suffering. Paul writes in Second Corinthians one five: For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with His comfort through Christ. See, living a godly life doesn't guarantee an easy life, and often it does mean opposition, but this one thing we know, the Lord is always with us, and He will see us through no matter what we, we face. And we need to realize as we strive to live godly lives that we're going to face opposition, we're going to face persecution, especially during these days of change and uncertainty. And that's what these men were facing there in Babylon. Three young men striving to follow God the best they can as foreigners in this pagan society, a society that worshipped all sorts of pagan gods, filled with people all about themselves, self-centered. All of their freedoms have been taken away, and now they're forced to live under the rule and reign of a heathen king. Sounds kind of familiar. So, to get a background of chapter 3, in, in chapter 2, Daniel had interpreted the king's disturbing dream of this massive image uh, uh, of gold with a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron. And Daniel revealed this prophetic meaning of his dream and what the statue represented, how it represented different kingdoms. And Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian kingdom was the head of gold and each section after that was the kingdom that would follow. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was very impressed with that dream. So much so that he said in verse 747 of chapter 2, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Famous last words. 
Because if this was just the end of our account, you might have thought, well, maybe the king became a believer. Unfortunately, the narrative continues revealing Nebuchadnezzar's true heart. Because Nebuchadnezzar, in light of that vision in chapter 2, 17 years later, built an image like the one he saw in his dream, only not only is the head made of gold, but the whole thing is made of gold. Obviously, he's making this statement saying, nobody's going to take over my kingdom, going in direct opposition to what God had told him would happen. Now, this brings us to verse 1 of chapter 3. Take a look at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So again, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the statue had, had a head of gold, but the breast and the arms of silver would be the Medo-Persian Empire that would come in, take over Babylon, replace it, the Babylonian Empire. But again, I believe Nebuchadnezzar is defying God's vision of the future and making this statement. And here's a massive image, and it's all gold, not just the head, the entire thing. We read that it's set up in the plains of Durah so that it would be visible for miles around. At 60 cubits, the image was 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. That is one big statue. When I was reading about this, I thought about a prophecy, prophecy conference we had here, I think it was about a month and a half ago, and the introduction to the giant. Remember that section of it? If you weren't there, you can get it online. But there's a picture of what they talked about. This giant, this thing is called the giant. It's the world's tallest moving and speaking statue. It's 10 stories tall, 140 feet high. It has patented skin matrix of millions of LED pixels, giving it the ability to instantly take the appearance and form of any man or woman. The plan is to take it to 21 cities coming to a town near you. I mean, this thing is huge. It, it moves its arms. You could put whatever picture you make. It be Spider-Man. The picture I saw had Al Roker on there because you get in the thing and just scans you and then there's your, your picture. It's been suggested that it's quite possible that we will see this technology used once again with the emergence of the Antichrist and the worshiping of the image of the beast. Very fascinating. Well, here Nebuchadnezzar built his own statue 90 feet high well, look what happens next. Look at verses 2 through 7. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, it's another name for princes, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and language, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This brings us to point number two. A godly life brings hard choices. Imagine you being one of these Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. You're standing there. You're face-to-face -face with this 90-foot statue. Image made of solid gold, looking just like the king. The king has commanded, as soon as the band plays, you must bow down. You must compromise. You must give in. 
Now, you know you are a Hebrew. You're one of God's children, and you know to compromise would be wrong. You've got that Hebrew heart, and you know better. Because one of God's top ten on list is the second commandment. We read in Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6. For you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, your Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. There should be no idol in your life. But now the crowd is watching. The king is watching. Perhaps you have family members watching. What are you going to do? Then the band begins to play. Now for some... They may rationalize. You see, at the time the band played, well, I had to tie my shoe, and so I was just bending down to tie my shoe, and, 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 and I really wasn't bowing down to the statue. That, that's not what I was doing. Or, or you know, as the band played, I, I, see that rock over there? I tripped on that rock, and it just so happened to be the same time the band played, and I wasn't bowing down. Or, you might have said, oh, God, I know that you're kind, I know you're compassionate and forgiving, so here's what I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking about bowing down, but I'm only going to do it with my body. I, I won't actually do it in my head or my heart. I'm just going to go through the motions. And because you're so loving and understanding and, and forgiving, that, that I'm just going to do that. I'll ask for forgiveness and everything will be okay. No. See, that's rationalizing. But you see, it's not about rationalizing. It's about recognizing. Not recognizing God's ability to forgive. Yes, we know we forgive. But it's, it's, it's recognizing whether or not we have the capacity to forsake every foreign God. To stand up and refuse, uh, to, for what is right, and refuse to obey the mandate to bow down before a statue. You see, it's not God's forgiveness that's on trial at this point. It's my integrity, it's your integrity that's on trial. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, actually Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Azariah, they were Hebrews boys. Their hearts were supposed to belong to God. So they've been put in this place, living a godly life, to have to make a hard choice. Will they choose to compromise or will they choose to, to commit? Will they resolve to do what is right? See, living a godly life puts us in situations where we have to make hard choices. It's been said Christians are a lot like tea bags. You don't know what they're made of until you put them in hot water. Are you in hot water right now? Maybe you're in the hot water of temptation because you're facing some temptation to compromise in your Christian value. And you're saying, well, I know this isn't right, but if I just go along with it, it won't, I won't make any waves and it'll be fine. Maybe it's compromise in another area. Maybe it's 5 o'clock, you're just getting off work, and some of your buddies say, hey, man, let's go get a drink over at Hooters. What do you say? What do you do? I mean, you want to fit in with your buddies, but, but you know going to places like that leads to lust and leads to drinking and leads to sin. But you want to fit in. You want to have that camaraderie. So what do you do? What choice do you make? Maybe it's not with the guys after work. Maybe it's, it's having lunch with a member of the opposite sex. It's, it's not your wife or not your husband. Maybe it's a temptation to respond to a text from a married woman or a married man without your wife or husband in that text. Maybe it's a juicy piece of gossip that your friend is about to tell you. And you know it's gossip. And you know it's wrong. Listen, Christian, the, the devil is going to throw at us situations and temptations and circumstances that he hopes will lead you to compromise. And again, yes, God can forgive you, but what we need to realize is that there's so much more at stake than God's ability to forgive and your ability to forsake. It's what's going on in this wicked world around us. They're watching you. They're watching me. Now think of over in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and the story about when David uh, had sinned with Bathsheba 
had Uriah, her husband, killed, Nathan the prophet shows up, rebukes David for his sin. And when he's exposed, 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14 says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. You're forgiven. He says, however, verse 14, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. See, this is exactly what happens when we, instead of being a Christian who is committed, we live carnal lives, compromised lives. The rest of the world looks on and looks at you and looks at me and says, look, 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 look what they did. And they blaspheme our God. That same word for blasphemy in Hebrew is bloom, flourish, abhor, despise. Do you get the idea? Every time a Christian compromises, the world looks on and, and, and we hand them an invitation and say, Oh, you hypocrite. You want me to do as you say, but not as you do? Or we give them the impression that there's no difference between being a Christian and being in the world. If there's no difference, then why be a Christian? And the enemies of the Lord blaspheme. Classic example of this, I think we find it in the book of Job. Satan is before God and tells God that the only reason Job actually loved him is because God kept this hedge of protection around him. And Satan says, hey, take that hedge out, and I know he's going to curse you. Now, we know that Job did not do that. He stood, he was a man of integrity. But had he done that, the enemy, Satan, surely would have said, I told you so. I knew that, that this guy was a phony. I told you he, did, he would be the flake. But Job proved to be a man of integrity. Listen, the same thing for you and me. The next time you're right there in the fork in the road between a rock and a hard place, and you might be saying, I don't know what to do. I know God will forgive me, but... Yeah, God will forgive you, but that's not the issue. Again, we need to understand the world is watching us as with David because he's in the Bathsheba, and now the world is going to say, oh, look at David, man after God's own heart. Is that how someone behaves whose heart is for God? And sadly, we've seen it time in and time again. Pastors who we've loved, who we've respected, now step down from ministry because they bow down to some sin, some scandal. Yeah, God forgives. But the world looks on and says, oh, come on. I knew they were a phony. I knew they were only interferred. Whatever. That's why, as Christians in the times in which we live, now more than ever, we should renew our commitments to live uncompromised lives. Why? Because we, we look at all that Jesus has done for us. That we would pray, Jesus, you did so much for me by giving your life for mine. How could I ever, ever add one more sin upon you that you had to die for? But sadly, we don't often do that. We all compromise in one area or another. We may try to keep it quiet. You know, perhaps it's our thought life. You know, the writer of Hebrews put it this way, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. I've asked this question before. Would you be embarrassed if the Lord all of a sudden projected all of your that was in your heart and mind that you've been thinking this past week on this back screen here? Tom thought this. Tom thought that. I said, oh, don't, 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 don't do that. But God sees in our minds. He knows what's going on in our hearts. And that's why we need to do as Colossians 3, 2 says, that your mind on things above, not on things on earth. I was listening to a study by Pastor Jack Hibbs. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit to live this life. And he says there's, there's times, maybe even in worship, where you're sitting there and you're worshiping the Lord. All of a sudden you get this ungodly, awful thought in your mind. Where did that come from? That's when it's time more than ever just to cry out to, to Christ to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. And you refocus and call out the name of Jesus. 
Jack said, you might have to keep doing that over and over again. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I thought, yeah, that's a good thing. See, here's my point. There will be times that we were put into situations that would lead us to compromise our walks with the Savior. The question is, will we stand strong or will we give in? Will we call in the name of the Lord or will we compromise? Well, let's see how Rakshak and Benny do it. Look at verses 8 through 12 now. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your God to worship the gold image which you have set up. So here we have these tattletales, okay? They come to Nebuchadnezzar. King, king. They didn't bow down like you commanded. <laughs> They're breaking the law. They don't care. They're breaking the mandate. What are you going to do about it? Now this brings up an interesting point. Is it ever okay to break the law? And if so, when? Now we know that Scripture emphatically says over and over again that we are to obey the laws of the land in which we live. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to the rulers, the authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. One more, 1 Peter 2.13.14, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So, if we take those verses and we're to be in subjection to the authorities to obey the laws of the land, then we're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego sinning by refusing to participate. No, of course not. They were committing the act of what is called civil disobedience. They non-violently refused to obey the command of the king and for a very good biblical reason. To obey that law would be to commit a sin. That is, if the law forces you to commit sin, then you must not obey it. You must follow the higher calling of God. I think of Peter and John when they had been arrested for proclaiming the gospel. They were called to appear before the authorities. And in Acts 4.18, it says that they, when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and what we have heard. Soon after, the apostles were arrested again. God sent his angels, we recall, to open it, release them from prison. And they kept preaching the gospel. They were discovered, they were jailed, they were brought before the authorities again. And this is what it says in Acts 5.27. They stood before them, the council and the high priest questioning them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. That is the key. Yes, the Bible allows and even, even commands us to commit Civil disobedience when the authorities command us to commit sin. If it's sin, we're not to do it. If what they're telling you to do is that which is in direct conflict with the word of God, you can say, no, I'm not doing it. Now, when you do resist, don't think that the world is going to applaud you. Look what happens next. Look at verse 13 through 15. 
that Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, great. So he's given them a second chance. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Okay, nobody read verse 16. I know you want to. Stop. Verse 15. We'll get to it. Because looking back at what we've just read, you have to wonder about these Hebrew boys, their convictions, their conditions. Because think about the standing right before them is the king. And the king is speaking to them with all the power and authority of the Babylonian government. He's on the throne. He's in his kingly array. He has a congregational hearing going on from all branches of government. The satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. And then maybe in the other corner is the crowd. And maybe you've got relatives in the crowd. And they've all obeyed the mandate to bow down. And these Chaldeans come up and say, Hey, it's a perfect ceremony. So for these three guys, they're not bowing down. Now the king summons you. Come here, boys. I need to talk to you. Now you're standing in front of him. The room is silent. And he says, is it true? You guys really aren't bowing down. I'm going to give you one more chance. So you got these three Hebrews. Now maybe they start looking at each other. And they're kind of going around. You know what's happening here? They're put in a situation that James describes this in James 1, 2, and 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, what's happening is that the work of God is happening in the heart of these Hebrew boys. God is growing them and changing them and taking them to the very, very edge. And that brings us to our third point. A godly life will bring it to the edge. Now, look at verse 16. Remember, King Nebi said in verse 15, If you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. I like that. Look at verse 18. But if not... Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the stinking gold image that you have set up. Okay, stinking's not there. But I love this part of the scripture. I love the story because you don't see these guys looking around conferring with each other. What do you think we should do? I don't know. What do you think we should do? Let's do rock, paper, scissors. Okay, we're two out of three. What, what are you going to do? No, the actual original language you're given a hint that before these kings actually got, before the king actually got his words out of his mouth, offering them one more chance that the, the actual language is, hey king, don't even go there. Verse 16, no, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, you don't understand, king, this is non-negotiable. We don't have to debate it. We don't have to have dialogue. We are committed to obeying God. Because either number one, we know that he's able to save us, or number two, we also know that if he doesn't, so what? My life is not my own. I gave it to God so that this is not an option to me. 
I don't call the shots about what happens in my life. I ask God to call the shots, and that is where the story ends, so I guess we're on our way to the furnace. I like that. You know why? Because I think God, at one point in all of our lives, will take us right to the edge. Maybe it's the edge of life or death, conviction or compromise. I don't know what's going on in each one of our lives in this fellowship, but I do know there's always somebody taken right to the edge. Maybe it is the, the mandate for the vaccine and you are on the edge of losing your job. Maybe it's a, a sudden illness that you just didn't, didn't see coming and now that person you love is lying there in a hospital bed all hooked up with, with tubes and needles and is on the edge of life and death. Maybe it's a godly stand that you took for what is right and now suddenly it's been all blown out of proportion and you're right there on the edge. Now, will you say, well, God, if this doesn't work out for me, then, 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 then that's it. You're not going to see me in church much anymore. I'm going to have a hard time fellowshipping from now on. Listen, God knows your heart. He will speak to your circumstance and he'll bring comfort to you no matter what the circumstance. But remember also, the world is watching. And as we as Christians don't continue to stand for our faith in Christ, the world looks on and says, I knew it. When hard times come, they flee. But when we gave our life to God, you know you have the opportunity to, to show the world who your life belongs to. Are you going to trust God or are you going to compromise? Regardless of the outcome. You know, we pray, God, bless my family, take care of my kids, keep us healthy. I want to offer all my kids to him, my wife. He knows me very well. I'm just like every one of you. And as much as I said that over and over again in my prayer, God, whatever you want to do in my life, I trust you. He knows my heart. Okay, God, trust you, but don't let anything happen to my kids. Don't let anything happen to my wife. Oh, I don't know what I do without her. And it takes us right to the edge. But we're not the only ones. I think of over in Hebrews 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. And you read that, and there are times there when they exercise great faith, shutting the lion's mouth, conquering with the sword. People rising from the dead. That's great faith. But the chapter ends not like you would think. You read that they wandered in goatskins around in caves, that they were destitute. And that they, 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 the Bible says they, the, the promise that they were waiting for, they didn't see on earth, but that the God had planned for them a better resurrection. In other words, the, despite how bad the circumstance was, they kept their eyes on eternity. Their hope was in the Lord's salvation, not in Him changing the circumstances, but bringing them through them. They, they, they were all taken to the edge. And if things didn't even turn out the way they thought, they still had great faith and they believed. Will you let God take you to the edge of great faith? Listen, every Christian, we're going to be there sooner or later. Some way, shape, or form, you're going to be asked to bow before some God, before some principle, before some idea. You're going to be asked to keep your convictions to yourself and get in a line and do what everyone else does because this is what we're all doing now. So then the question will be, are you going to stand up for your faith or are you going to cave in? Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Rakshak, Benny, they made their decision. King, you don't need to say anymore. Do what you must. We must follow God. Brings us to our last point. A godly life brings blessing and peace. Look at verse 19 through 25. The Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. 
Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, if you were Pentecostal at this time, you would shout out, Hallelujah! Or you'd breathe forth singing, there's another in the fire, standing next to me, I need to sing it! Nebuchadnezzar had it mostly right. He was seeing the Son of God, Jesus was with them. It's called a theophany, an early appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. He's walking around. He's in the fire with them. Folks, we need to remember that in the midst of our fiery furnaces, we must never forget that Jesus is there. David prayed it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Someone put it this way. There will be times you want to quit. There will be times you feel it's too hard. But there will never be a time God isn't there. Are you in a fiery furnace this morning? Rest assured, if you trust in Him and continue to live a godly life, you'll be blessed and you'll have that peace that passes understanding. Look now at verse 26 and 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come out wherever you are. Come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the safe traps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. I love this story. Staying cool when things get hot. <laughs> now, usually when a house catches fire, the noxious fumes penetrate everything. Carpets, you know, curtains, chairs, fabrics, everything but not the slightest stench was detectable in the clothes worn by these Hebrews. They came out completely unscathed. The only thing that was burned on them were the ropes that bound them. And that is why even when God allows us to go through fiery trials, it streamlines our lives. Everything that's a hindrance to our growth or that spiritually superficial disintegrates. The only thing that burns is that which binds. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the furnace no evidence at all that they were in a fire. Understand, folks, the truly victorious man or woman comes out the other end of his trial without smelling like smoke. In other words, you're not going to be embittered by the difficulties. You're not going to be angry over the circumstances. You're not going to be holding a grudge against those that caused the trouble. You just simply come out purified and free. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 5, 3, and 4, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character, and character strength our confident hope of salvation. Or the way Peter puts it, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may be also glad with exceeding joy. Finally, verses 28 through 30, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made in ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. I love it. Always like to see endings like that. Yeah, a godly life brings opposition. A godly life brings hard choices. A godly life brings you to the edge. But a godly life brings blessing and peace. These men, they stood firm in the strength and the power and the might of God, trusting Him fully even unto death. And God blessed them and glorified Himself, saving them out of the fire. But even more amazing thing here is that these young men would have trusted Him even if they died. That is a peace that God gives us that passes understanding. No matter what we face, no matter what the outcome, we will trust God because we believe that His Word says He'll never leave us or forsake us even if he's going to take us home to heaven. Maybe you're in a fiery trial right now. You're, you're not alone in life. Jesus is there with you each step of the way. Isaiah's word in Isaiah 43, 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, God says. Isaiah 43, 2. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 28, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As we close, get ready to enter the communion. Let, let me bring us back to standing up for Christ. Because it's going to happen in each one of our lives. Now you may play it cool, you may try to be low-key, but sooner or later, you're going to be asked the question, is it true? I heard you were a Christian, heard you were a follower of Jesus. Is it true? And you'll have the opportunity to stand for Christ. Listen, one person standing up for Christ can lead to another, they can lead to another, and sooner or later, we have one last revival before the Lord returns. That, that's my prayer. So as we enter communion, I'm going to ask you today to make a stand. I'm going to ask you to, to prayerfully ask God to show you. Is there any area in your life that could potentially be a compromise? It might be a small thing. The fact of the matter is, a lot of people might be doing it. Even people who say they're Christians. But deep down inside, you have this conviction in your heart, the sense that it's not right. So I'm asking you this morning to make a stand in that area. As we come to the communion table, confess to the Lord any area of compromise and find forgiveness and strength from the Lord to carry on. Maybe you've never given your life to Christ. If that's you this morning, before we even participate in communion, I pray that you'd give your life to Christ and say, I want to follow you from this day forward. If you're not saved, I ask, why not? Why are you holding back? Jesus loves you. He's forgiven you. Give your life to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this opportunity to come before the communion table and to look and see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. To see that they are willing to not compromise, but to lift Your name on high. Lord, maybe there's areas in our lives that we're dealing with right now that's tempting us to compromise, to give in, just to, to keep silent just to go with the flow, even though we know in our hearts it's sin. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to make that stand, to resist temptation, to resist compromise. We know your word says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Lord, help us to, to take that stand through the power and might of your Holy Spirit. 
Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that's yet to give their life to you, that they would do so now, Lord. They would uh, come before you, ask for the forgiveness of their sins, and make that commitment. Bless our time of communion, we pray, remembering the cross, remembering what was done upon the cross. Jesus, you've taken every penalty that we so rightly deserved upon yourself so that we can have your righteousness before our Heavenly Father in heaven. Thank you, God, for the work that you've done for us. Bless this communion time, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.